0: To open that pew Bible in front of you, and if you're new to the Bible, I'll give you a shortcut. You will find Joshua chapter nine on page 190 in that pew Bible, and uh, would love for you to have a copy of the Bible open and, uh, and walk with us through this passage together. While you're turning there, I'll tell you a story. The year is 2008. Sarah Tokolsky was a college softball player uh, for a school called Western Oregon. And Sarah and her team were playing against uh, another team called Central Washington. And Sarah was a, uh, a key leader on her softball team, a great player, She had never hit a home run until this particular day in 2008. She stepped up to the plate, the pitch came, she turned on it, she cranked it over the fence. Her whole team went crazy. They knew over the whole course of her career she had never, not once, hit a home run. This was her first one. As she went to round first base, she missed the base. And everyone who knows baseball or softball knows you, ha- you have to touch the base. you got to touch all four of them to get credit for the home run. She realized she missed the base. She stopped to turn and go back. And when she stopped, her knee bent weird and she tore her ACL. She immediately fell in the dirt and uh, was in tremendous pain, of course. And she crawled back to first base and touched it. And then the question was, well, what happens now? If she doesn't touch all the bases, she doesn't get credit for the home run. Her coach asked, can, can I help her? Can I pick her up, ask the umpire, can I help her around the bases? And the rules of softball, the rules of baseball are clear. No, if she gets touched by anyone from her own team, she's automatically out. Two other runs had scored on her home run, but if she is touched, she's out. Uh, okay, well, what if we brought in another runner, someone else to help her? Well, that, they could do that, but then she doesn't get credit for the home run. It's just a single. And then one of the girls from the other team, uh, her name was Mallory. She said to the ump, she asked, is there anything that says we can't help her? And the umpires conferred, and they said, no, there's nothing in the rule book that says you can't help her. And so Mallory and another one of her teammates from the opposing team picked up Sarah, they cradled her in their arms, and they walked her around the bases. And at each base, they stopped and lowered her down so she could tap the base, and they got her home, and she got credit for the home run. That's a picture from 2008 from that ball game. It made all the headlines. The whole world went crazy for this story. They won an ESPY for sports moment of the year. Uh, It was incredible. And all the headlines called it this. They called it sportsmanship. Incredible sportsmanship. But Christian people would look at this and give it another name. We would call it mercy. Sarah, who tore up her knee, received mercy. Mallory and her teammate from the other team, who the rules were in their favor, who this act cost them the game. They lost the game because of this. They showed mercy. Mercy makes headlines in a merciless world. And Joshua chapter 9 has one singular headline, and that headline is mercy. What are we talking about when we talk about mercy? It's a word we use a lot. We sang it this morning. We read it from scripture this morning. What are we talking about when we talk about mercy? Let me give you our working definition for mercy today. Mercy is God's compassionate act in which he forgives the sinner and withholds the punishment that is justly deserved. So it's God's compassionate act. It, It comes from his love for people. Uh, It's for sinners, and it's a withholding of punishment that the sinner justly deserves. There's a difference between grace and mercy, and we've talked about this before in a real simple definition. Grace is receiving the good thing you don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving the punishment you do deserve. So grace, the good thing you don't deserve mercy is missing the punishment that you do deserve joshua chapter 9 is all about mercy our study of the book of joshua has been a roller coaster ride so far hasn't it i mean we started off just gangbusters just this is awesome god's parting the water of the jordan river israel walks across they're taking possession of the promised land this is a monumental moment in the history of Israel. Uh, they are entering the promised land with a twofold mission. First of all, the army of Israel is God's chosen instrument of judgment against the sinful inhabitants of this land. In what's called Canaan, there are multiple groups of people, multiple different tribes who have sinned against God and against each other. And God's patience has been extended generation after generation. And finally now, Israel is here as God's hand of judgment against them. Second part of their mission is not just to enact judgment on behalf of God, but is also to take possession of the land because it is from this piece of property That God has designed for Israel to be a kingdom of priests through which all nations on earth are blessed by God. They are to be the conduit of God's blessing to all nations. And so we started our study of Joshua with their entrance into the promised land. God parts the raging floodwaters of the Jordan River in this incredible scene. And then they set up camp at this place called Gilgal. And as you read through Joshua, Gilgal is like their home base. They'll go back to it over and over again throughout the conquest. From Gilgal, they go to their first city, Jericho, March around the city, the walls come down, they take Jericho. We learned about God fighting for his people and giving them victory there in Joshua chapter 6. From Jericho, they go to Ai, a much smaller town, which should have been a simpler victory, but instead, you remember, they got walloped. And the reason for Israel's defeat by Ai was because of sin in the camp of Israel. A man named Achan had taken some things he should not have, he was not supposed to, and as a result, God's anger burned against Israel. Achan met God's judgment, the situation was rectified, Israel returned to Ai, and last week we saw Israel uh, secure victory over Ai. And that brings us to Joshua chapter 9. Now, uh, I have good news for you about Joshua chapter 9. No one dies in Joshua chapter 9. That's a welcome reprieve. I mean, we've been through some heavy territory in the book of Joshua. Chapter 10, going to make up for it big time. Chapter 9, nobody dies. It's a welcome reprieve. And that reprieve comes in the form of God's mercy. How much do you know of God's mercy? If those closest to you were to describe your character, what are the ways in which you are like Christ? Would you be described as a person of mercy? You should be. Do you wanna be like Jesus? You you wanna see the life and character of Christ reflected in your life? Then it is for all of us to know and experience and live out the mercy of Jesus Christ. My purpose in preaching this passage today is that we would be transformed as individuals and as a church by the mercy of God. That transformation means we receive mercy. That transformation also means we give mercy. So if we're going to be transformed by God's mercy, we have to understand with clarity this most basic concept. Of God's character and our life with Him. Joshua chapter 9 answers three questions for us about God's mercy. So follow along with me as I read Joshua chapter 9, starting in verse 1. When all the kings heard about Jericho and Ai, those who were west of the Jordan in the hill country, in the Judean foothills, and all along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea toward Lebanon, the Hethites, Hethites Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they formed a unified alliance to fight against Joshua and Israel. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they acted deceptively. They gathered provisions and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They wore old patched sandals on their feet. And threadbare clothing on their bodies. Their entire provision of bread was dry and crumbly. They went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant land. Please make a treaty with us. The men of Israel replied to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How can we make a treaty with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. Then Joshua asked them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They replied to him, Your servants have come from a faraway land because of the reputation of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two Amorite kings beyond the Jordan, King Sihon of Heshbon and King Og of Bashan, who was in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our land told us, Take provisions with you for the journey. Go and meet them and say, we are your servants. Please make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we took it from our houses as food on the day we left to come to you. But see, it's now dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, but see, they are cracked. And these clothes and sandals of ours are worn out from the extremely long journey." Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions but did not seek the Lord's decision. So Joshua established peace with them and made a treaty to let them live. And the leaders of the community swore an oath to them. Three days after making the treaty with them, they heard that the Gibeonites were their neighbors living among them. So the Israelites set out and reached the Gibeonite cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephirah, Beeroth and Kirioth jerim But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the community had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then the whole community grumbled against the leaders. All the leaders answered them, We have sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This is how we will treat them. We will let them live so that no wrath will fall on us because of the oath we swore to them. They also said let them live. So the Gibeonites became woodcutters and water carriers for the whole community as the leaders had promised them. Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said to them, why did you deceive us by telling us you live far away from us when in fact you live among us? Therefore you are cursed and will always be slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. The Gibeonites answered him, it was clearly communicated to your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. We greatly feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. Now we are in your hands. Do to us whatever you think is right. This is what Joshua did to them. He rescued them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. On that day, he made them woodcutters and water carriers, as they are today, for the community and for the Lord's altar at the place he would choose. It's a great, great story. Uh, I think there's some comedic relief in here, I, if, if, if it can be called that. Uh, the whole dress-up, the whole charade that the Gibeonites play is really fascinating. And uh, the Gibeonites put all this on display for the sake of securing their own safety. And in doing so, they meet the mercy of God. In a most unusual way, a way that you and I couldn't script, in the Gibeonites and in the Israelites, we see God's mercy on display. So what are we talking about when we talk about mercy? This passage answers three questions for us about God's mercy. We're going to do it in a Q&A format this morning. The first question it answers is this, what is God's mercy like? And the answer is that God's mercy is gloriously undeserved. What's his mercy like? What's the nature of it? The very character of his mercy, it is gloriously undeserved. So two people, two groups of people experience God's mercy in Joshua 9. First is the Gibeonites and second is Israel. So the Gibeonites are going to answer this first question for us. Israel will answer our next question. Now, it's easy to fall in love with the Gibeonites, I think, anyways, because they're so clever. They are funny. They are audacious. So let's take a moment and explain their deception. Their goal in this is to save their own skin by forming a treaty with Israel. Now, they respond to the news of Israel in a way that's different from other cities and other kings in the area. That's how chapter 9 opens. Here are all these Canaanite pagan kings who hear of the destruction of Jericho and the destruction of Ai. And how did they respond? They responded by allying together for war. Now, we met those same kings already back in chapter 5. Chapter 5 opens with the same rundown of names. But in chapter 5, when they hear of the mighty acts of God, they responded with terror. They were afraid, now they're angry. But the clever Gibeonites say there might be another way than trying to take our swords against Israel. If their God is parting waters and destroying cities, I'm not so sure that we can fight against that. And so they craft this plan. And this plan is based on some knowledge of Israel's God. There seems to be at least two things that they know about Israel's God. They both come from the book of Deuteronomy. First of all, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, uh, Israel is instructed this way When the Lord your God gives these nations over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction, make no covenant with them, and show no mercy to them. So, what does Gibeon know about Israel and Israel's God? They know that they are in line for judgment that what has happened to Jericho and what's happened to Ai is going to happen to them also. Death is on their doorstep. They seem to know that. They also seem to know something from Deuteronomy chapter 20, which lists different rules for Israel when dealing with enemy nations who are near versus enemy nations who are from far away. And in that passage, they're instructed to let peoples from far away live, but to exact God's judgment on those who are nearby. The Gibeonites reference this at the end of the chapter when they call on the name of Moses. We know what Moses said is to happen. So their whole deception is based on this knowledge. One, we're we're supposed to die. That's what Israel's God has planned for us. But if we can make them think that we are from far away and not close by... Here's this loophole that just might work for us. They might form a treaty with us that would save our skin if they think we're from far away. So they dressed the part. They probably got the, the jankiest looking donkeys, right? The oldest, most worn out animals and the worst clothes. And then they, they took old bread and they put the old bread and old wineskins on the donkey. I mean, they... They do so good at at looking like they're from far away, like they've traveled this long distance. And not only do they look the part, they sound the part as well. I don't know if you noticed this, but when they talk about what they've heard of Israel and Israel's God, they referenced Egypt and King Sihon and King Og. You know who they did not reference? They didn't reference Jericho or Ai. And why is that? I think it's because people who are near would have heard of Jericho and Ai. But it's only people who are from far away that would not yet have heard of those things. So that would have, could have been an obvious tell. Oh, we heard what happened to Jericho and Ai. How did you hear that if you're from so far away? I, 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 mean, I, I mean, someone told us. I mean, we, just, we heard about it, the news, whatever. So they only reference old things. Those old things are still knee-rattling and terrifying, but still it's old things. So they've, they've thought through these things all the way. They're so good. And then to seal the deal, they give the Israelites some of their crumbly bread to prove that it's old. So therefore, they must be from far away. Hey, th- it was warm when we left. It was sourdough when we left, and now it's, a, what, a Nature's Valley granola bar. I mean, look at it. It has utterly transformed in the time. The, how, you can't explain that except for miles and time. We're obviously from far away. It's easy to love these guys, but don't be deceived. The Gibeonites are not a tribe of clowns. They are grotesque sinners against God and against each other. They are deserving of the judgment that God has decreed for them. God describes in small part the reasons for their judgment. In Exodus chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, God identifies their idolatry as well as their detestable practices. So they have rebelled against God, they have rejected His grace. And they therefore commit horrible acts against each other. The Gibeonites deserve God's judgment. And yet, they found the mercy of God. Now you might say, but they they got their treaty with Israel through deception. So it shouldn't really count. And I would say, thank you for making the point that mercy is undeserved. It is not for the clean Gibeonites, the Gibeonites with potential, the Gibeonites who are better than the Hethites. It is for people who do not deserve it full stop. Mercy is not a reward. It's not an achievement. It is gloriously undeserved. And so what is it that makes God's mercy so incredible, so glorious? Look, it's It's not just the removal of punishment, though that is a big part of it, but rather it is the application of God's compassion. It's His love to sinners. The only people who experience the mercy of God are people whom God loves. Any place we see God's mercy, we see God's love in action. And throughout the Bible, there's this inseparable connection between God's mercy and In God's love. Let me just show you two examples from the Bible that you might be familiar with. In Lamentations chapter 3, starting in verse 22, we're told, Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They're new every morning, Great is your faithfulness. It's his love that awakens us with mercy day after day. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, But God who is rich in mercy, Because of his great love that he had for us. When Paul describes our salvation by grace through faith, he connects the love of God with the mercy of God. So mercy is incredible because it is God's love given to the unlovely and the undeserving. His mercy speaks to us of our value to him. Listen, God loves you. That's not cliche, that's not bumper sticker material, that is atomic, earth-shaking, magma-erupting truth that changes your life to know that God loves you, sinner that you are. He has mercy for you, and that's something praiseworthy about our God. His mercy is gloriously undeserving. There's a second question that this passage answers about God's mercy. The second question is this, who is God's mercy for? And the answer from this passage is that God's mercy is for messed up people. It's undeserving, and it is for messed up people. Now, there are two groups of people who experience God's mercy in this passage. First is the Gibeonites. Second is the Israelites. So the Gibeonites teach us us how God's mercy is undeserved, but Israel teaches us the sort of people who receive God's mercy. His mercy is for messed up people. The most important verse in chapter 9 is verse 14. I want you to look at it with me. You might just fly by it, but it explains everything that happens here. Verse 14, the men of Israel took some of their provisions but did not seek the Lord's decision. So they ate some of that fake crumbly bread. No, it wasn't fake, I mean it was real, but they ate the, the, the pretend bread and then uh, they did not seek the Lord's decision. They made their decision to form this treaty with the Gibeonites based on the bread, not based on seeking the Lord's input. What in the world are you doing, Israel? I mean, who are these people? Is not... AI still smoldering on the horizon. Didn't they just learn the lesson of what happens when you act without God? And here we are again, acting without God. How could they be so dumb? I mean, just it's colossally stupid for them to not consult God on such a simple matter. There's all kinds of problems with it. And look, to be fair, they're sniffing around wisdom in their interaction with the Gibeonites, right? in verse 7, perhaps you live among us. How can we make a treaty with you? Where did you come from? The Gibeonites say, we're from far away, just eat our bread. And the Israelites say, oh yeah, that bread's crumbly, all right, I got a good feeling about these guys. Treaties for everyone, come on, let's do it, right? So it's just so dumb their actions, their failure to call on God. And so then where is God's mercy to Israel in this story? I think God's mercy to Israel is this, even though they forgot him, he did not forget them. It's a stunning error on the part of Israel, and yet God does not let his people go. Not only that, I think we can infer this other mercy from God in that, By forming this treaty with Gibeon, they are dispensing a mercy to them, and therefore they get to see what it's like to sit in God's seat in a small way. To, they themselves are recipients of mercy. Now they themselves are giving this mercy, though they've stumbled into it through error. Still, I think God, in his sovereignty, allows them this privilege to be mercy givers to undeserving people. What did Israel deserve in light of their repeated failures? Well, they deserved punishment. And, and while you and I, as readers, might sit here in judgment of Israel. God exercises his compassion yet again and extended his mercy to his people. I, I would go so far that as to say that God's mercy to Joshua specifically comes in the form of allowing him to learn a lesson about praying to God in a moment of need, a lesson he's going to use in chapter 10. Chapter 9, they don't seek God, and this error happens. In chapter 10, I don't want to give the story away, Joshua prays and planets freeze. It's incredible. So Israel messed up, but God was merciful. Gibeon, of course, they've messed up, but God was merciful. And what about you? Any chance you've lived deceitfully? Any chance you've made decisions without seeking the Lord? Any chance you've made foolish errors? We have to take an honest look at ourselves as we study Joshua chapter 9. To be a recipient of mercy means we we have to take this honest assessment of ourselves to say, I need God's mercy because of my failures, because of my mistakes. The person who looks in the mirror and says, I don't need God's mercy because of the quality of my life, because of the morality with which I live, that person's in real danger. The person who would look at themselves and say, I've done the worst and I deserve the worst, but I'll throw myself on the mercy of God, that person will find God's compassion. So hear me, there is mercy for you in the Lord. Our service opened this morning with us declaring this incredible truth from Psalm 116, verse 1, I love the Lord because He has heard my appeal For mercy, do you need mercy? Ask for it. God lets us ask for it, and he delights to give it. You don't have to beg, plead, make a deal, bargain with him. You ask, he gives, and you have a song to sing like Psalm 116. Our story is incredible because messed up Gibeonites find God's mercy through messed up Israelites. But today, you and I find God's mercy through the sinless, perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ. He's the very embodiment of mercy. Out of His great love for you, He died in your place for your sins. He took your punishment on Himself so that you could have eternal life. And He gives mercy to everyone He asks. There's two kinds of people that reject mercy. One is the person that says, I'm so good, I don't need it. And the other is the person that says, I'm so bad, I can't receive it. Both of those are problematic. Both of those are wrong. One of my favorite writers, a guy named Brennan Manning, talked about both of those people in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. And he said this about them. He said, we fluctuate between castigating ourselves and congratulating ourselves because we are deluded into thinking we save ourselves. But when we accept ownership of our powerlessness and helplessness, when we acknowledge that we are paupers at the door of God's mercy, then God can make something beautiful out of us. God's mercy is for messed up people. That's you. That's me. Every one of us here in need of God's mercy. And when we ask for it, He gives us, there's mercy for you and me. So what is God's mercy like? It's gloriously undeserved. Who's it for? Messed up people. Last question. What does God's mercy require? Not not what does it require to receive it. I mean, what does it require of us in response? And the answer is mercy is a call to faithful service. So God's mercy on Gibeon. And His mercy on Israel has different results for each group. But still, there's a life of faithful service. There's a response of mercy to mercy. So for Israel, God's mercy on Gibeon requires Israel to keep the oath they've made to Gibeon. They have to continue in this faithful service to these people. Again, the way you and I think about contracts, we would say, well, this was was secured under deceptive means. Israel didn't have all the information. Gibeonites lied. You got to let your yes be yes and your no be no. In God's economy, you make a treaty. You swear this oath of protection and you have to keep it. Israel has to keep this oath. That's the response. God's been merciful to them. They have to be merciful to the Gibeonites moving forward. And if you and I struggle to understand that, it could be because we think so lowly of God's Word. We don't understand how powerful God's yes is to us. And what other option does Israel have? Do they say, we made a mistake and so instead we're going to kill you? That would be totally contrary to the character of God and the mercy He calls for in this passage. But instead, Israel does what oftentimes we have to do. In the errors our sin creates, we must live as faithfully as possible. In the consequences of our sin, in the aftermath of our sin, those errors may persist, but you and I are to still live as faithfully as possible with the Lord in the midst of those things. Sin, mistakes, are, are, are not an excuse for us to live to our flesh or to, or to jettison our faith and hope in the Lord. But instead, you and I are to live faithfully even in the errors we create. And that's what Israel does here. And what about the Gibeonites? What were the results of God's mercy to them? Well, first of all, Gibeon escapes with their lives, verses 24 and 26, But then they live under a curse, and Joshua references that curse three different times towards the end of chapter 9. That curse is that they were to be woodcutters and water carriers for God's sanctuary. So, in essence, they're assigned hard labor. Uh, And what you and I might not recognize by the time we get to Joshua 9 is that this sort of service has already been referenced by Moses way back in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 10 to 12, Moses is describing all the people who belong within the covenant community, who are God's people. And what Moses does is he identifies all the Israelites, the men, the women, and the children. He identifies the foreigners or the sojourners living among us, and also those who cut wood and carry water. So it's a peculiar kind of curse. You're going to carry wood, or excuse me, you're going to cut wood and carry water. That's hard labor. But it is a hard labor within the covenant community. And it's a labor that's carried out in the Lord's service. It is at His, ultimately at His temple. So they're doing this hard labor in the most sacred place, in the covenant place. It's a privileged place for the Gibeonites. And look, the Gibeonites show up in places of honor over and over again in the remainder of the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel, uh, King David defends their honor. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we meet a man named Ishmael of Gibeon who is one of David's mighty men. In Nehemiah chapters 3 and 7, Gibeonites are referenced as those who survived the Babylonian exile. They returned to Jerusalem to help rebuild the wall and continue their service to the house of the Lord. The Gibeonites received the mercy of God and then they live out generation after generation this faithful service to God. And so it is for you and I today that as recipients of God's mercy, we are to be dispensers of that mercy as well. We must be givers of God's mercy in faithful service to Him. Jesus spoke to the religious professionals of His day in Matthew chapter 23, and He called them hypocrites. And do you know why? He said, you will obsess over how much you tithe But you withhold mercy. I'll give a tenth of my salt, a tenth of my paprika, a tenth of my garlic powder, a tenth of my coins. But you won't give an ounce of mercy. Jesus called that person a hypocrite. God said in Habakkuk chapter 3, Jesus repeats it in his ministry. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We would rather give songs than we would mercy. Church, we've got to examine our hearts on this. Are we people of mercy? And I'm not here to lay a burden on you this morning as if to wag my finger and be like, you've got to be merciful. Just get tough and do it. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 said, blessed are the merciful. I'm pointing you to blessing this morning. Do you want the blessings of God? Then, brothers and sisters, we are to live as merciful people And so what that means is that we're going to include in the covenant family people who might otherwise be your ideological enemy, your political opponent, someone that you don't like for whatever reason that might be. It means that God has mercy waiting for them, even if you don't. But I believe that God has placed South Shore Baptist Church exactly where we are because in Hingham, in Cohasset, in Situate, in Hull, in Weymouth, and the rest of the towns of the South Shore, God has mercy waiting for our neighbors. And He's put us here to dispense that mercy. Listen, we live in a merciless world. And there are so many preacher types and church types who are building their public platforms on anger and warfare and fighting. But brothers and sisters, how has our Lord saved you? Were you saved by the anger of Christ or by the mercy of Christ? If his mercy changed your life, won't it do the same to those who live in our homes and around our homes? Absolutely it will. And so be a person of mercy. To receive it requires that we would live in this way. And I know other writers, other pastors, other churches are going to be full of anger and venom in a merciless way. But not this pastor and not this church. May it be said of South Shore Baptist Church. We are people of mercy. Doesn't mean there aren't things that get us riled up. There are things that require righteous anger in this world. But our call from Jesus Christ is to be merciful just as our Father is merciful. He didn't make a mistake when He told us that. So let's believe the Word of Christ enough to be those kinds of people. We who have received mercy must live merciful lives and thereby fill the earth with the glory of God. It's pop quiz time. Let me ask you a few questions. What is God's mercy like? Well, we've learned this morning it is gloriously undeserved. Question number two, who's God's mercy for? We learned this morning it's for people who are messed up. Question number three, what does God's mercy require of us in response? The answer, it calls us to a life of faithful service. So the first question you would ask yourself from this passage today is, am I a person who has experienced the mercy of God? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sin and turned to Jesus in faith and received God's mercy and forgiveness? I want you to listen to what Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says. Proverbs 28, 13 says, The one who conceals his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. So no more masks and no more hiding. But throw yourself on the mercy of Christ today. And you, my fellow believer, are you a person of mercy? Are you like Jesus? There's a couple of places where we might face challenges with this. Sometimes in our theological studies and camps, we become merciless people. And so if your theological or doctrinal banner leads you to be a jerk, to be mean, to be angry, the problem's not with your theological label, the problem's with your heart. You've got to evaluate yourself. Our knowledge of the deep things of God should lead us to be more and more like God. It should make you more and more merciful to believe in the words of Christ. So whatever theological labels you carry, brothers and sisters, make sure you are becoming merciful like Jesus Christ. And it might be that you have someone in your life who is your opponent, your enemy, they have done you wrong. And it could be that the Word of God calls you to act in mercy towards them. If you're not merciful, how do you become merciful towards them? First in prayer, sit at the cross see Christ dying for your sin, think of the person for whom the sinless son of God died, that will transform you from the inside out. And then you act. You act out of the mercy you have received. And so instead of gossiping about that person, you speak a blessing to them. And instead of holding on to bitterness, you carry them in prayer. Instead of cursing them, you wash their feet. And it may be that there's a situation in your life in which it is not wise or proper or possible for you to express a mercy that would then result in a relational reconciliation. In that situation, you entrust that person to God. It is an act of mercy to pray and say, God, let your mercy be with them. When we get to heaven, you're going to set this right. God, I leave justice and vengeance and mercy in your hands. Do you want to be like Jesus? Then be merciful, just as your Father in heaven is merciful. Let's pray together. Father, make us like you. Just as a father is compassionate to their kids, so you are compassionate to your children. Uh, You have turned us from deceivers into disciples. You have changed us from enemies into heirs. We praise you for this. So thank you for your mercy to us. And God, this morning, I pray that the person who would stand before you self-confident, that they don't need it, or the person who would stand before you self-defeated, convinced it won't make any difference, that they would believe your word today, that they would put everything on Jesus and find mercy in him. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would live faithfully every day, even in the errors we commit. Thank you for Israel's example, one that we can resonate with because we make the same mistakes. So, Lord, as recipients of your mercy, help us to live it out. Help us, South Shore Baptist Church, to be a beacon of mercy, holding the gospel out front. So that lives will be transformed, souls will be saved. Let us transform this town, our towns, by the mercy of Jesus Christ experienced in his glorious gospel. Father, may it be said of us that we are like you, that we are merciful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.